He survived. Somewhere in their fifth dimension, they saved us. Who the hell is they? And this why they want to help us, huh? I don't know, but they constructed this three-dimensional space inside their five-dimensional reality to allow you to understand it. Well, that ain't working. Yes, it is. You've seen that time is represented here as a physical dimension. You have worked out that you can exert a force across space-time. Gravity. To send a message. Affirmative. They didn't bring us here to change the past. Well, they didn't bring us here at all. We brought ourselves. That's the moment in the movie Interstellar when an astronaut played by Matthew McConaughey realizes that a civilization from the future is manipulating space, time, and gravity to save humanity. In a new book called The God Equation, physicist Michio Kaku says, that's not a totally crazy idea. The God Equation lays out the case that new perspectives on the multiverse could provide a path to extra-dimensional travel and maybe help us dodge the inevitable death of our own universe. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co-host, science fiction writer Dominica Fetaplace as we talk with Michio Kaku about scientific frontiers that just might blow your mind. Black holes, white holes, wormholes, extra dimensions, alternate universes? For most of us, such concepts are mere flights of fancy, but for Michio Kaku, they're serious business. In addition to his role as a theoretical physicist at the City University of New York, he's the author of more than a dozen books and has been on countless TV and radio programs. He has a knack for explaining cosmic subjects in a way that everyone can understand, but his latest book, The God Equation, raises the bar. Michio traces the march of physics from Isaac Newton through Albert Einstein climaxing in the quest to find a common foundation for the two great pillars of modern physics, quantum theory and relativity. Einstein called it the unified field theory. Today, physicists call it the theory of everything, or string theory, or M-theory, or the God equation. When Dominica Fetaplace and I linked up with Michio Kaku over Zoom to talk about the God Equation, the first thing that we wanted to know was how he got involved in this quest. Well, it all started when I was eight years old. I still remember when I was eight years old, great scientists had just died, and they put a picture on the front page of the newspaper of his desk. That's it, just his desk with an unfinished book on top. And the caption said something like this. This is the unfinished manuscript from the greatest scientist of our time. Well, I was fascinated by this story. Why couldn't he finish it? What's so hard? Couldn't he ask his mother? I mean, why couldn't he finish that book? So over the years, I went to the library 
And I found out this man's name was Albert Einstein. And that unfinished book was to be the theory of everything, the God equation. The equation that would, quote, allow us to read the mind of God. Well, I was hooked. I wanted to be part of this great chase. So when I was in high school, I went to my mom and I said, Mom, can I have permission to build an atom smasher in the garage? I'm going to build a 2.3 million electron volt betatron electron accelerator in the garage. Well, my mom stared at me and said, sure, why not? And don't forget to take out the garbage. <laughs> so I took out the garbage. I assembled 400 pounds of transformer steel, 22 miles of copper wire, and I built a six kilowatt, 2.3 million electron volt accelerator in the garage. Finally, it was ready. I plugged it in. I closed my eyes, shut my ears, and I heard this crackling sound as six kilowatts of power surged through my capacitor bank. And then I heard this pop, pop, pop sound as I blew out all the circuit breakers in the house. My poor mom, she'd come home after every day, hard day's work, and the lights would be out because I blew all the circuit breakers. And she must have said, why couldn't I have a son who plays basketball? Maybe if I buy him a baseball, and for God's sake, why can't he find a nice Japanese girlfriend? Why does he have to build these machines in the garage? Well, that was the beginning of my career as a physicist. The God Equation is certainly a provocative title for the book. Years ago, uh, people referred to the mysterious Higgs boson as the God particle, which caused a lot of grief for physicists who wanted to avoid mixing science and religion. Why did you decide to call this book The God Equation? Well, as Einstein once said, science without religion is lame, but religion without science is blind. So I wanted to capture Einstein's feeling. He wrote for 30 years about this great chase to find an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow him to, quote, read the mind of God. These are his words. So he wanted to inject into the whole discussion of physics some philosophy, some religion. And he believed not in the God of the, necessarily the personal God that answers your prayers and smites the Philistines. He believed in the God of Spinoza, the God of beauty, harmony, simplicity. The universe could have been ugly. The universe could have been messy. Yet on one sheet of paper, you can write down Einstein's equation and the standard model of quantum theory on one sheet of paper. It didn't have to be that way. And that's why I said, I want to follow an Einstein's tradition to say it in the words that Einstein would have used as a God equation. Do you have a minute-long elevator pitch for the God equation? How do you explain the significance of this exotic corner of theoretical physics to people who don't know a quark from a lepton? Well, I like to think of it this way. The universe, in some sense, is a chess game. And we are just beginning to understand how the pieces move. For 2,000 years, ever since the Greeks asked the question, what is the world made of? We've been struggling to figure out the rules of the game, how the pawns move, the bishop, the castle. So what is the objective? The goal of all this is to become grandmasters, to find the rules of the game, to find the God equation perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to crack the code and become grandmasters of chess. So that's why I decided to write this book 
because physics gets simpler and simpler the deeper and deeper you go. And finally, at the very bottom, you find an equation which explains everything. And that's the goal. The goal is to find an equation that explains everything. You know, biology, all of biology can be explained in the language of chemistry. All of chemistry can be explained in the language of physics. Physics can be explained by two theories. The theory of the very big, which is black holes, big bang, relativity, and the theory of the small, the quantum theory of particles. What we want is a single theory, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to unify all these forces. Just realize that E equals MC squared is one inch long, and yet it explained the secret of the stars. Why do the stars shine? Because M of hydrogen turns into E of sunlight. That's why the universe lights up the way it is. So Einstein wanted a similar equation that would summarize not just stars, but everything. One of the impressions I got from this book is that scientists are having a hard time fitting gravity into this theory of everything. Shouldn't something that's so observable be easier to explain? Well, you think so, but every time you try to put gravity in with the quantum theory, the whole theory blows up. And the question is, why? You see, 2,000 years ago, uh, Pythagoras, the great geometer of Pythagorean theorem, had an idea for a paradigm, a theme that would unify the entire universe. And that theme, that paradigm was music. He saw a lyre string one day. And he realized that when you pluck a lyre string, the longer the string, the lower the note. And then he went by a blacksmith shop and realized the bigger the bar that the blacksmith was making, the lower the sound it made. And then he said, aha, I can write down the mathematics, the mathematics of octaves, thirds, fifths, chords, notes. And then he said, the universe should also be explained this way as nothing but musical notes. Well, that theory never went anywhere. The Roman Empire fell apart. 2,000 years of darkness and witchcraft and, and all sorts of nonsense. But recently now, we realize that music, music could be the language that unifies gravity with all the other forces. You see, a vibrating string has many vibrations. The lowest vibration contains gravity. So gravity is just like another particle. You can unify all the notes, A, B flat, C sharp, as subatomic particles married with gravity. So that if Einstein had never been born, we would have discovered all of general relativity without Einstein as the lowest vibration of a tiny string. So you see, gravity is now unified with all the other particles. So what is physics there for? Physics is the harmonies you can write on these vibrating strings, each note being a particle. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the melodies you can play on interacting strings. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony of vibrating strings. And then what is the mind of God? The mind of God is cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. That is the mind of God. So if we were to find a quantum theory of gravity, would the theory of everything be finished then? We think so. Uh, these are the two bad boys of physics. On one hand, we have the theory of the big, black holes and big bangs and 
Einstein's theory. And then on the other hand, we have the subatomic particles of pi mesons, neutrinos, quarks, Yang Mills particles. And these two halves don't like each other. It's like having a left hand and a right hand. They don't talk to each other. Who would have thought you could have a creature with the left hand and the right hand that don't talk to each other? That's why we feel that there is one unified language. And this unified language says that gravity is nothing but another musical note, just another note on a vibrating string. There's been a lot of discussion about some findings at the world's largest atom smasher, the Large Hadron Collider in Europe, suggesting that there's an anomaly in the way that a specific kind of subatomic particle, known as a B meson, breaks down. Could this provide clues to the nature of the God equation, or perhaps to the nature of mysterious dark matter? When you probe the fundamental nature of particles, you find more particles. There's a zoo, a zoo of subatomic particles. Uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, father of the atomic bomb, once said, quote, the Nobel Prize in physics should go to the physicist who does not discover a new particle <laughs> this year. We're drowning in subatomic particles. So the standard model of particles is ugly. It works. It fits the data. But it is the ugliest theory known to science. It's like taking an aardvark, a platypus, and a giraffe, scotch taping them together, and declaring that to be nature's finest evolutionary creation. Gorgeous, elegant, but there it is, a mess. But we now can find slight deviations from the standard model. So we're saying, aha, aha, maybe that's the signal that we're looking at the next octave or the next set of vibrations of the string. Just two weeks ago, an anomaly was found that showed that mu mesons and electrons obey differently, violating the standard model. So now physicists are saying, aha, we now have a clue or as Einstein used to say, if you see the tail of a lion, you can pretty much conclude that there's a lion on the other side. This could be the tail of a lion, the first known discrepancy in the standard model of the quantum theory. If we do figure out the God equation, what sorts of innovations might become possible? Are we, are we talking about anti-gravity beams or wormholes or any of these things that we've seen in science fiction? Well, you know, we're not talking about anti-gravity beams because anti-gravity is gravity, we think. However, we have mysteries like what's on the other side of a black hole, maybe a white hole on the other side of a black hole. Is a black hole a gateway, a gateway to another universe, uh, like a wormhole? And what happened before the Big Bang, before time itself? What was there? And time travel. Is time travel possible? Well, all these questions are not solvable within Einstein's theory. That's where string theory comes in. String theory is a theory of everything. It should give us a theory before the Big Bang. So Einstein gives us a picture. The universe is a bubble. We live on the skin of the bubble, and the bubble's expanding. That's called the Big Bang theory. But string theory says there are other bubbles out there other universes. And when these bubbles collide, that's the Big Bang. Or maybe they fission in half. So we now have a theory before the Big Bang, a theory that explains the Big Bang itself. And so this theory takes us far beyond the theory of Einstein. It takes us into a multiverse of universes, parallel universes. 
Then the next question that I often get is, is Elvis Presley still alive in another parallel universe? And the answer is, well, yeah. There's a certain probability that the king is belting out hit after hit in another one of these bubble universes out there. Too far for us. But yeah, he's out there. I was just about to ask that Elvis question, so uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. But I did want to ask whether there are things that might become practical applications. I know you're good at speculating about what the possibilities of the future might be. Uh, Is there some sort of device that we might look at uh, 200 years from now and think the reason we have this is because of the God equation? Well, first of all, every time we worked out a force, it changed human civilization. When Newton worked out the theory of mechanics and uh, machines and worked out the theory of gravity, that set into motion the Industrial Revolution, which lifted us from an agrarian society to a modern society. And then Maxwell worked out Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism. That gave us the electric revolution of radio, television, microwaves, vacuum cleaners. And then Einstein, of course, gave us E equals MC squared, pushing us into the nuclear age. And so now we're on the verge of a theory of all forces, electricity, magnetism, gravity, the nuclear force, all forces combined into a master equation. And then the next question, I guess, is what's in it for numero uno? What's in it for me? Well, (laughs) Let's be honest, in the short term, nothing. Because string theory is a theory of universes. It's not a theory of how to build a a super hoverboard or how to blast off with, with a rocket ship. However, it does indicate that one day we may be able to break the light barrier, possibly by creating a wormhole, but you have to have vast amounts of energy to do that. So our descendants, may have the ability to warp space and time, but not our generation. Now, if you saw the movie Interstellar, at the very end of the movie, people speculate, who built the wormhole? Who built this gateway that humans can flee into now that the Earth is dying? And at the end, it hints that the people who built the wormhole were our descendants, our children's 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 children. They pitied their ancestors who were living in a dying world, the earth. And so they built a gateway, a gateway to the past so that our civilization would not perish. Well, (laughs) that's science fiction, but it's based on string theory. The guy who helped to write the script for that won the Nobel Prize in physics, and he ends on string theory. Uh, Matthew McConaughey at the end of the movie is floating in a hypercube that comes right out of string theory. So you see, it has some practical applications in Hollywood, but not for the average person. Sorry about that. You write a lot about alternate universes in your book. um, And I'm curious about that. Uh, Should we be looking for evidence of these other universes and how might we visit them? Well, the bottom line, of course, is experiment. We have to have data. And we're going to be launching a satellite in in the coming decades called LISA. Laser Interferometry Space Antenna. It's a gravity wave detector in outer space. It's three satellites connected by laser beams, three million miles across. It is the biggest machine of science ever conceived of by the human mind. It'll pick up vibrations from the instant of the Big Bang and perhaps give us baby pictures. 
baby pictures of the infant universe as it emerges from the womb. And maybe, just maybe, we'll have evidence of an umbilical cord. An umbilical cord connecting our infant universe as it's coming from the womb, connected to a parallel universe. So our universe may have been, once upon a time, a baby universe that peeled off a mother universe. All this, of course, is science fiction. But now NASA and the European Space Agency are seriously looking at LISA and what it could do to give us baby pictures of the instant of creation itself. Not thousands or billions of years after the Big Bang. No, at the instant of the Big Bang. And this is something that's measurable. Another thing that's measurable is dark matter. You know, every high school textbook says the universe is made out of atoms. Well, (laughs) that's not totally true. Most of the universe is made out of dark matter, an invisible matter. We can find it perhaps in our laboratories, smashing into a proton in a spark chamber. Dark matter makes up most of the matter in the universe, and we think it's the next octave of the string. We are the lowest octave. Everything you see around us will be the lowest octave of a vibrating string. The next octave is invisible, and it includes the Fotino, which is one of the leading candidates for dark matter. So maybe we'll be able to detect evidence of higher vibrations of the string within our lifetime. Maybe tomorrow we'll pick up the signature of a decaying particle of dark matter in a spark chamber. At the end of the book, uh, you delve into how the search for the God equation parallels our search for the meaning of life in general, and you even suggest that harnessing the God equation could be our ultimate salvation. Uh, You say in the book that you're agnostic, but the book's conclusion has a very spiritual feel to it, and I'd love to hear how your work in theoretical physics has affected your spiritual perspective. Well, first of all, my parents were Buddhists. And in Buddhism, there is nirvana. There's no beginning, there's no end, there's just nirvana. But I was raised as a Presbyterian, as a child, where I learned about Genesis and God creates the universe in seven days. So I've had these two mutually contradictory ideas in my head for many years. Either the universe had a beginning or it didn't. End of story. Nope. The multiverse idea gives us a new Uh, spin on the whole question. You see, our universe had a beginning. Our universe began with an explosion called the Big Bang. But our universe is a bubble floating in a bubble bath, a bubble bath of other bubble universes, which are being born even as we speak. Even as we started this interview, Big Bangs have happened someplace in the multiverse, someplace out there, universes have been created. And what is the universe expanding into? That's the number one question that children ask. Mommy, daddy, if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? And the answer is nirvana, hyperspace. A higher dimension is what our bubble universe is expanding into. And so here we can meld together with the multiverse idea, the idea of a single creation incident, as well as multiple creations within the fabric of hyperspace. 11-dimensional hyperspace, otherwise known as nirvana. So to me, this is actually rather pleasing. Now, the most depressing paragraph in the English language was written by Bertrand Russell, famous British mathematician philosopher. And he said that no matter how many tears, 
no matter how many struggles that we have endured, it's all for nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because the sun will die. And when the sun dies, because of the laws of physics, the earth must necessarily die. That is the laws of physics. Well, today we laugh at that. It was written in the 1930s. We laugh at that because today we have rocket ships. They didn't have rocket ships back in 1930. But now we have the second law of thermodynamics. Everything falls apart. Everything rusts, decays, dies. That's the second law of thermodynamics. So how do we get around the cosmic conundrum that the universe is dying? One day, stars will blink out. It'll get super cold. We'll all freeze to death as it becomes near absolute zero. Well, that's trillions of years from now. And I figure at that point, we're so advanced. We'll harness the Planck energy, the energy at which universes can be created, and we'll create a bubble, a bubble of our own. We'll leave our universe, go to a younger universe where we can mess that universe up as well. So we'll now have two universes to mess up. And that's why we need to find the theory of everything. That's right. It is so we can survive the heat death of the universe. That's right. It is the ultimate salvation of intelligent life in the universe. This Physics is not a death warrant. Physics makes open the possibility of a loophole, a loophole in the second law of thermodynamics. Because the second law of thermodynamics applies to closed systems. If the system is open, that is, you have a bubble to another dimension, you can escape the second law of thermodynamics. Oh, that does make me more optimistic about the future. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to know, are you a fan of science fiction? And if so, are there any concepts or ideas that you wish you would see more often in science fiction? Well, I read a science fiction short story by Asimov, where he said, uh, you know, billions of years into the future, We'll be like energy beings, just teleporting ourselves across the galaxy. And I said to myself, can you do that? Well, I think it may be possible to realize Asimov's dream. You see, we are digitizing ourselves, uh, our emails, our Instagram photographs. Uh, We can create a digital signature which approximates who we are. In the future, we'll completely digitize our entire being. When we go to the library, for example, I would love to talk to Einstein. One day he will be digitized. His mannerisms, speeches, inner thoughts, all of it, everything known about him will be digitized, will be immortal. And what do we do with this immortality once we become immortal? We're going to put ourselves in a laser beam and shoot ourselves to the stars. In one second, we'll be on the moon. In 20 minutes, we'll be on Mars. In four years, we'll be on the nearby stars. And we'll download ourselves into a mainframe, into an avatar. Our consciousness will then explore the universe as a superhuman avatar living on different worlds, able to withstand high temperatures, low gravities, cosmic rays, no problem. We'll be supermen and superwomen conquering the universe using the laws of physics, as Asimov predicted in his short story. Those sound like they would be some excellent plot twists for future science fiction stories. And I I think there are some uh, writers who are already starting to work uh, the ideas of the multiverse and string theory into their stories. Do you have any favorite science fiction writers or science fiction shows that delve into this new frontier? Well, I like to watch Star Trek and an acquaintance of mine 
uh, Miguel uh, Altavier was watching an episode of Star Trek where the Enterprise was zapping through space. And he said, I bet you I could find a solution of Einstein's equations that can do this. And he did. He found a bubble solution of a warp bubble. And sure enough, you can go faster than the speed of light using the Alcabir drive, using Einstein's equations. Now, what's the catch? <laughs> There's always a catch someplace. Otherwise, we'd be on Alpha Centauri right now. The catch is it takes a fabulous amount of energy, uh, the energy of a black hole, in order to make this possible. And you don't know how stable they are. Will it blow up when you walk into a time machine or a wormhole machine? That's where string theory comes in. Uh, string theory will allow you to control the radiation so that it doesn't blow up and you can safely jet across the galaxy this way. There are all sorts of fascinating projects coming up uh, from whatever the Large Hadron Collider is going to come up with next to the search for life, perhaps on Mars, perhaps on Europa, uh, looking for signals from distant star systems, even trying to send some little tiny miniature probes past Alpha Centauri looking for signs of life. What are you most excited about and what are you looking forward to in the next few years when it comes to this frontier of discovery? Well, I get a lot of emails from the public, and quite a few people say, Professor, uh, you're wrong. You're totally wrong. The aliens in life, they're not there in outer space. They're here on the Earth. And then I say, well, how do you know that? And they say, I know that because I've been in their flying saucers. I've been kidnapped by the aliens. I know they're out there because I've been in their starships. Well, I have a word of advice. If you have ever been kidnapped by a flying saucer, the next time, for God's sake, steal something. <laughs> There's no law against stealing from an extraterrestrial civilization. You can't go to jail for it. Steal something, a microchip, a hairpin, a pencil, anything alien to prove that you, yes, you were on that starship zapping your way across the universe. I think they're out there. I'm not sure they haven't visited us. But I think they're out there. So that's what you're looking forward to? Somebody bringing in a hairpin? Or, or, or what other sorts of evidence might come that is a little more expected for a scientist such as yourself? Well, a microchip, an alien microchip would settle the question right then and there. <laughs> no, more, no more abduction tales, no more flying saucer, a wild goose chase. Just one little microchip from an alien ship would settle the question right there. And by the way, I think they're out there because already we've cataloged 4,000, 4,000 planets orbiting other stars. You know, uh, back in the, the year uh, 1600, Giordano Bruno was burned alive in the streets of Rome. This former monk burned alive in the streets of Rome for believing that there were aliens out there. You know, every day now, Bruno has his revenge. He has his revenge because we've discovered a new planet out there orbiting another star, just like he predicted back in the year 1600. So. Fortunately, today, they don't burn physicists, but they did burn heretics back in those days. And it just goes to show you how far we've come. So you're on the alien spaceship. What kind of technology are you going to try to steal? Well, any kind of evidence showing that perhaps faster than light travel is possible. Now, special relativity, of course, says that you cannot go faster than the speed of light. All hell breaks loose when you even get close. To the speed of light. But general relativity has a loophole. You see, time and space are like a river. We think that the river only goes in one direction, 
But this river, let's say the river of time can actually have whirlpools. Whirlpools in the river of time, or the river of time could fork, fork into two rivers. And this gives us a whole new way of looking at space travel. That yes, it's great to build rocket ships. It's great to think about these things, but we have to realize that the ultimate energy is the Planck energy, 10 to the 19 billion electron volts. And the Planck energy is where the quote, laws of physics begin to break down. And we have to realize that, that we have to be humble. There could be civilizations out there utilizing physics at the Planck energy where the so-called laws of physics don't apply. Let me explain. Um, we like to rank civilizations by energy, type one, type two, type three. A type one civilization has planetary energy. They control the weather. They control volcanoes. Like uh, Flash Gordon would be type one. Type two is stellar. They control the entire output of a star, like Star Trek. Star Trek would be a typical type two civilization. They've only colonized a tiny sector of the Milky Way galaxy. Then there's type three. Type three is galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes. They have the energy of a galaxy, like, like Star Wars. Star Wars would be type three. Then the question is, what are we? Are we type one that play with the weather? Are we type two that play with the sun? Are we type three that roam the galactic space lanes? No, we're type zero. We don't even rate on this chart. We're type zero. We get our energy from dead plants, oil and coal. How backward. We don't even have fusion power on this, on this earth. So I think we have a long ways to go. But I think we can see that even on our primitive civilization, we are about to make the transition to type one. You see, what is English? English is the first planetary language. What is the internet? The internet is the first planetary communication system. So we see we're beginning to see the emergence of a type one civilization, even on the planet Earth. As you say, we do have a long way to go, but we're all mortal. Are there things that you still want to get done during your time here on, on the present plane of our universe? Uh, is there a Kaku equation that you're hoping to bring out? Uh, what lies ahead for Dr. Michio Kaku? Well, yes, um, we have that. Uh, two-inch equation that summarizes all of string theory. That's my equation, by the way. That's called string field theory, and I'm the co-creator of string field theory. But that's not enough. We now know there are membranes out there. Our universe could be a membrane. So we need an even higher theory. We don't have that yet. We don't yet have a higher theory that explains membranes as well as strings. That's what I'm working on now. That would be the theory of Einstein. That would be the missing link to this whole chain if we can unify membranes and strings together. We're not there yet, but that's what I do for a living. And do you have hope that you're going to be able to do that in your lifetime? Yes. In fact, any day, some young person out there may have declared that they've been able to find the God equation. I tell people that if they ever discover this one-inch equation that summarizes all the laws of physics, be sure to tell me first. And we can split the Nobel Prize money, you and me. Well, you heard it here first, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing that prize money, at least a share of it, go to you. Thank you so much for spending the time with us, and I know that the God Equation is going to do well as a book and as a theory. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.
For more about the God Equation, including information about ordering the book and getting in on Michio's virtual book tour, check out my Cosmic Log posting at fictionscienceclub.com. While you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling, just follow the link from Cosmic Log. I'd like to thank Michio Kaku and Doubleday at Penguin Random House Books for the interview, and thank James Emily for his rendition of the Cosmic Log theme, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to the Fiction Science Podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.